Welcome everybody to Not Fake News, episode two. I am your host, Braden Hart. Uh, on this episode, I have got one of my Twitter followers here. We're going to talk conservatism. We'll talk libertarianism. We will talk a bevy of other stuff. Uh, my guest with me now at this time, his name is Jared Rabel. Very smart guy for not being verified on Twitter. <laughs> Anywho now, Jared, how you doing? Thank you. I'm doing pretty good. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Yep, no problem. It's uh, quite honored to have you. So before we get into the actual questions, I'd like to know, you want to tell the uh, audience a little about yourself, where you lean at, uh, what you want to do maybe in life? Okay, yeah. So uh, I just graduated from college, uh, Salisbury University here in Maryland. I live in Maryland. Um, I was majored in political science and minored in history. Um, and I would like to be a lawyer. Uh, so I just got accepted into law school for the fall semester. That's um, awesome. And so I would, yeah, thank you. Yes, so I, w I would like to go into either family or constitutional law, but I'm not really sure at this point. Um, and as for my uh, political beliefs and stuff like that, I've always been pretty much on the right, um, but my belief in libertarianism has sort of been really cemented within the past three years, I'd say. That's really good to hear. I, uh, like I said, I tend to be. I like to um, describe myself. I like to say that I'm the more uh, conservative of libertarian. Yet I'm more lib. I'm a uh, more of the libertarian of conservatives, if you know what I mean. You know, I uh, tend to yeah, buck. Yeah. I tend to buck the Republican Party on some issues, mainly on social issues. I consider myself more of a social moderate than a social liberal or progressive. Like I support gay marriage, but I'll be honest, you wouldn't be able to find me with a search warrant at a gay pride parade. Yeah. Yeah, no, I understand that. And, and, and I think the dichotomy of libertarianism as being socially left and fiscally right is something that might need to be corrected a little bit too, because like I'm not socially left or right. I would just say that I'm more, um, I want the government out of everything basically, you know? Yeah, uh, I agree. So I, what? I'm sorry. I agree. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to say like, um, yeah, basically, the progressives typically want government to enforce their social agenda. And, you know, they do it in the schools, they do it in, in the media, they do it in uh, a bunch of different areas. And the conservatives tend to want the same thing, but for traditionalism. So I sort of want each individual to be able to decide for themselves, you know, what their social preferences are. And I think that type of voluntary society is the best way to go about um, running the country. Yeah, and also to note with conservatives as well, they tend to want more regulations on uh, social media. I'm not sure if you've been following that, like with Senator Josh Hawley. He's been one, you know, leading the charge on that in the Senate. With uh, uh, <clears throat> One thing I've always had the question for conservatives, would they be doing the same thing, though, if prominent progressives were being banned? I kind of doubt it. Yeah, no, I don't think so. And I mean, there's a, I think there's a bit of a populist nationalist um, bent that's been going on since Trump um, in the GOP. And I mean, that's really, like you said, that's really represented in Josh Hawley. Um, I think a lot of his bills are just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that um, like some of his social media regulations, um, like they included some weird stuff like going into YouTube and regulating how much um, videos a person can watch and different things like that. I mean, it was pretty, like, overwhelming, like, some of the stuff he was proposing. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so you brought up, you know, Trump and the GOP. Now, my first question that I marked down, because I like to do that so I don't forget what I want to ask. My first question mm -hmm. is, 
What do you see the future of the GOP? Do you see it continuing down the nationalist populist road? Or do you see it going back to its more neoconservative George W. Bush roots? Or even back further to the more Reagan-esque or Coolidge-esque uh, republicanism? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really, really cool question. Um, I love political history and studying political ideologies in general. So that's really cool. Um, yeah, I, I would like personally for it to go back to that Coolidge-type era, but that's just my opinion. I, I think if you're looking at reality, um, it's probably going to go down more of the populist nationalist route, in my opinion. Um, I think neoconservatism has been really strongly rejected since the Iraq War and in the aftermath of all of that um, and the unpopularity of George W. Bush and then also a lot of George W. Bush's acolytes coming out of the woodwork to criticize Trump. Um, I think... The Republicans really resent that now, the, the Republican base. And so they resent a lot of the neoconservatism that that carries with it. And I would see them going down more of a Josh Hawley, Trump type of populist nationalist road. And you see that in Europe, um, like with Brexit and with um, different movements in the, in the continent, like National Rally in uh, France. And there's a lot of other, like in Italy, um, the, I forget the name of it. I think it's the Northern League, they're called. But they there's a populist right-wing movements sprouting up throughout Europe. Um, and I think you're going to see a little bit of that um, in the United States. And um, that looks to me like how the GOP is going to continue. My hope for it is that in 2024, the Republicans decide to nominate. I know it's going to shake a lot of heads, but I honestly hope they go with somebody like Nikki Haley. Yes, I know she may be a bit of an interventionist. She even is for my liking, but I'm not a one-issue voter. She's stern. She's serious. She always has that look that a mother gives her son when she knows that he's lying, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So she, either I think my top two would be either her or Ron DeSantis. I'm not really sure. A lot, a lot of people have uh, Mike Pence, but I really don't know. I, mean, I know Mike Pence really to me is basically to an extent Trump without the baggage, but he mm -hmm. tends to be more religious like oriented, which isn't necessarily a bad thing unless it comes to – policies, you know, putting policies in place just because religion, you know, not everybody believes in that same religion. Yeah, no, no, I think, um, and Pence also doesn't have the charisma, like he has Trump's message, but he doesn't have the charisma, I don't, I think, to get it done Good point. Um, and to become the nominee. Like, I, I like Nikki Haley in some ways, some ways I disagree with her. Um, you know, I tweeted about her once, uh, two, two months ago, and I've never, you know, been able to live that down from a certain Twitter user. Um, if, if you he's probably annoying. know Richard, um, I don't even think but, he's a real person. Yeah. Yeah. He could just be a troll. Yeah. Like a, or a bot or something. Yeah. Exactly. But, um, but yeah, no. So like, I like Ron DeSantis. Um, I think he's, he's pretty good. I think I, I like Rand Paul. I think he's a good prospect, um, for 2024. And, but I also think Josh Hawley is going to run. And I think a couple other ones, like, I don't know if Pence is going to run or not, but there's definitely going to be a pretty crowded field because uh, whether or not Trump wins this, this election, um, there's going to be an open primary for 24. So, um, yeah, oh, just going back to Nikki Haley real quick. Um, I did like what she did with the unions in South Carolina um, and how she sort of fought them and got going into her state and things like that. Oh, yeah. Um, I, but I sort of disagree with her uh, interventionism and stuff, as you could imagine. Yeah, I agree. Like I said, I'm not even the biggest non-interventionist. I support 
Myself, I support. I think if we would focus less on the Middle East and more on overthrowing communist regimes in Latin America, because that's our sphere of influence, um, I think we'd be somewhat better off. We'd still be spending a decent amount of money, but still we'd be more better off. Yeah, right, right now we, we're spending something like $850 billion a year on the military, and it's just it's incredible. I mean, I think that's just an insane amount for whether you're a non-interventionist or an interventionist. I think a lot of people can agree that that's just an insane amount to spend on the military. Yeah, well, yeah, I agree with you there, but to an extent, you know, $850 billion out of our annual budget, I think is like, what, close to $4 trillion? Um, that's not even 25%, but I understand where you're getting at. That's uh, still a decent amount of money. Yeah, and, and really the real um, drivers of our debt is Medicare and Social Security and entitlement reform, which has to be done. That's yes. Those are the main drivers of the debt. But I was saying as, as compared to the rest of the nations in the world and also compared to just the sheer amount of money that is, I want to see massive cuts in government spending across the board. Like liberals tend to attack defense spending. Conservatives tend to attack entitlements. But I just I want to see it, you know, all slashed. <laughs> Yeah, for, from someone like me who is relying to an extent on SSI, I would like to see the same, even if it means i got to take a cut. Because that's one of the fears that I have, uh, that I may wind up living completely off the government or wind up homeless, which I don't think that's going to be the case. With Now that this is getting started, it's getting out there, people may notice me. Yeah, yeah well, no, and I think that if there are going to be cuts in Social Security, um, it's not going to affect people who actually, like, I wouldn't want it to affect people who actually need it right now. Like, I would want it to focus on um, lowering the retirement age or raising the retirement age gradually um, and also privatizing it for people who are younger and, um, you know, having that money go into private accounts instead of the government where, you know, our monetary system right now is just awful and the value of your Social Security is not going to be the same um, and it's actually not going to pass the solvency right now. Uh, if we do nothing. So I think there's, um, you know, there's a lot of room for reform there. I, yeah, I've always been trying to figure out how would it work, you know, for someone like me, like if Social Security was privatized along with, you know, uh, supplemental security income, how would that work for me? Like, how would they be different? I wonder. Yeah, I, well, if it were privatized, um, it, it would, instead, that money that you have right now going into a, a the, having the government distribute it would be going into a private account and it would, be connected in some way to the stock market um not completely but it will be connected in some way to that but there's different proposals on the table um and i really don't think it's been talked about nearly as nearly enough since paul ryan uh came out with that um i forget the exact name of his plan i think it was a roadmap to something it was called but um anyway it, he had a pretty detailed plan on what to do with entitlements and it really hasn't been talked about since um so there's a lot of competing proposals but I'm not sure exactly um, how it will be implemented practically right now because nobody's really talking about it. They've sort of abandoned all of those proposals under Trump. Uh, Trump has sort of, well, I mean, he's really soared the debt and uh, increased the deficit, you know. So he hasn't um, been, been that good at, in terms of addressing our entitlement reform needs. Yeah, that's a topic I'd like to get to in a little bit, the uh, national debt going mm -hmm. up tremendously under Trump. Um, Next question. Now we switch over. Now, what do you think of the future of the Libertarian Party? Uh, well, that, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think that it's getting better. Like, I think the low point was when that naked guy walked up on stage at the Orlando convention in 2016, and it sort of smeared the whole Libertarian Party as being this meme. Um, you know, uh, but 
I think um, left libertarians and people who are more, not neoconservative, but more interventionists took over the party in 2016 with Bill Weld and um, Nicholas Sarwark, who was the chair of the LP up until very recently. Um, I think he's actually leaving within the month or so. Um, but yeah, I think it's going in a better direction um, with Joshua Smith. He's running for Libertarian Party chairman. Um, and also with uh, uh, Jacob Hornberger, who is running for um, president on the Libertarian ticket. And Justin Amash obviously has jumped in as well. So I think Jake, between Jacob and Justin, um, those two guys are pretty good when it comes to being principled uh, libertarians. And I think they could mount a pretty compelling candidacy um, in 2020 and perhaps even get, you know, 5% of the vote, uh, up to 10% of the vote maybe. And that really, once you cross that threshold, that really cements your status as a major party. So not necessarily even, you know, Ross Perot 1992 levels, just enough, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't see any candidate, any independent candidate getting Ross Perot levels right now um, because, I mean, if they were going to do that, it would be in 2016 because everybody hated Trump. Everybody hated Hillary. Um, it was just who hated the least, who was hated the least. So I think uh, now you have a lot of adoring fans for Trump and that he's taken over the GOP, basically. So they're pretty happy with him. And with the Biden, they don't the Democrats don't dislike him as much as they did Hillary. Um, so I think if you were going to have a big independent run, that would have been in 2016 and not really as much now. We'll get but, to I, but, but, but I, I do think, I was just going to say, I do think the Libertarian Party, ideologically speaking, in terms of principle, is moving in a better direction than in 2016, um, just because we're putting up principled candidates and with Justin Amash coming in, giving the uh, media spotlight to the party. I think that's good. I was just going to say also that libertarianism is freaking awesome, but some libertarians tend to be a bit uh, uh, cartoonish. Yeah. Yeah, like, um, oh, what is it? He's got a boot on his head. It's a, the, um, I forget his name now. Vermin, Vermin Supreme. I didn't even think he was a real person. Yeah, no, he is. Um, he participated <laughs> in the last uh, libertarian debate. I think people like that really pollute libertarian principles because um, – there's a long history of libertarian principles being very, very um, good for the country. And it was once a very prominent presence in the Republican Party, uh, like you were alluding to earlier under Coolidge and um, before that. Okay, well, now let's move on to the question number three. Can the GOP and the Libertarian Party coexist to in order to fight the progressive onslaught that is coming? Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's an interesting question. I think when it comes to the GOP, it depends on who you're working with. I think that there's a lot of elements in the GOP who do want to work with libertarians and vice versa, but the divide post-Trump has gotten very, very wide um, with Republicans embracing more so protectionism and immigration controls and um, you know higher spending and not, not addressing entitlement reform. And then with libertarians sort of not... Um, you know, they've gotten a bit more radical, I think, um, you know, and so they, they're kind of propelling each other a little bit. But also when you think of the rise of the Groypers, have you heard of the, you've heard of the Groypers, I'm sure. The what? The Groypers? Yeah, yeah, like the alt-right. I talked about them a little bit in yeah. my uh, uh, last episode. Okay, yeah, yeah, like so for them, uh, they basically want to destroy the libertarians. They hate libertarians. They blame libertarians for everything. 
Um, and if that type of ideology continues to permeate the Republican Party um, in any meaningful way, then I don't think there's going to be much room for cooperation. But if there, if it doesn't, and if that's sort of tamped down on, and if the GOP also does not embrace neoconservatism again, then there could be definitely room for um, room for cooperation, especially on foreign policy, because I'm seeing a lot of more, not necessarily non-intervention, but more so a willingness to scale back our foreign policy among people in the GOP. Yeah, I was going to say I agree as well. Um, I think for me it is that the um, – oh, what am I trying to say? The, the GOP has got to come to a consensus on whether or not the – they just have to come to a consensus on, you know, religion and whatnot. The GOP, most in the GOP got to realize that not everybody is religious. Not everybody supports certain things because of religion. And also, you know, the libertarians got to realize that there are certain times or certain cases where interventions are needed. Like, I think Afghanistan at the time, we needed to go into there. Um, yes. What else? Iraq at the time, no, even before that, a lot of people, they totally just messed up on Iraq. Um, they, like, the weapons of mass destruction, which that wasn't necessarily Bush. That was more of uh, the CIA misleading Bush. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that the threat that the intelligence companies pose to democracy in this country cannot be overstated. Um, and I think that the FBI, CIA... Um, you know, uh, people who mention this oftentimes get labeled as conspiracy theorists, but I'm nowhere near that. Um, I just think that the power that they hold is the intelligence agencies hold is something that is um, leads us into so many bad decisions, not only Iraq, but a, a lot of other bad decisions. Um, and also perpetuating this, you know, Russia conspiracy that, that has been um, sort of the one mainstream media the past three years. Uh, that's been pushed by former intel officials who uh, have a vested interest in in trying to get rid of the Trump administration. And uh, I think that it just um, the threat that they pose should be discussed more. And I think that conservatives, after seeing what happened to Trump, are starting to wake up to that libertarian perspective a little bit. Um, and going back to what you said earlier uh, regarding foreign policy and, and the need for some intervention, I do think the war in Afghanistan was justified. Um, you know, we were attacked and the Taliban was harboring al-Qaeda. Um, I think if we would have focused on Afghanistan and not have gone into Iraq, we could have much more easily eliminated um, al-Qaeda and instead of letting them escape into the mountains while we go and topple Saddam. Um, that's not something that should have been done. Uh, so I agree that some are justified, yes. And instead of possibly going into Iraq, maybe we could have at the time gone into Saudi Arabia. Yeah, they were the one. I mean, the hijackers were Saudi. They were financed largely by the Saudi government and by the Saudi government-adjacent entities. Um, and yeah, I mean, but nobody really wants to talk about that, and nobody wants to talk about the Yemen genocide that's going on right now that's been carried out by the Obama and the Trump administration, um, where we are basically bankrolling the Saudis and starving and, and destroying an entire population in Yemen. Um, there's been cholera outbreaks. There's plagues are, are manifesting in Yemen. Um, because of this, and it's just, it's an insane foreign policy we have where we bankroll some of the worst dictators in the world, and then we try to project a moral high ground. I don't think you can do both of those things. 
I agree with you on that, but in the defense of the in the uh, aiding in the war on Yemen, you have on the other side you do have the Houthi rebels who are backed by Iran. So if we get there's a chance, you know, if we get out of there, good chance the Houthis could gain the advantage, and then uh, you have a more of a possibly a Shah of Iran situation, which happened back in the late seventies under Carter. Yeah, I would say that that's true. Iran could gain an advantage. Um, I would say it's not necessarily that much of a bad thing because I'd say how many Saudi Arabia based attacks that we had on, on in our nation influenced by Saudi Arabia versus those from Iran. I think Iran presents a much less of a threat uh, to us than Saudi Arabia. Um, I mean, just it was a couple months ago where in Florida, I forget the exact name of the base, but in Florida, a military base, um, it was shot up by a guy that was Saudi Arabian national. He was inspired by Wahhabi propaganda that the Saudi government pushes throughout the world. And he killed a bunch of Americans, and I think that, um, or he was plotting to kill a bunch of Americans. And I think if you look at that, 9-11, and the Wahhabism that is spread throughout the world by the Saudi government, I think they present just as much, if not more, of a threat than Iran to the United States and Western Western interests in general. Eh, fair point there, I guess. I'll have to concede to that. <laughs> next but, topic. I mean, yeah, we could agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, next topic. More of a uh, current events issue. Where do you stand on COVID? Because, you know, on the left, you have the whole argument of you just want to reopen to save your portfolio or you just want a haircut or you just want grandma to die. And then there's a bit of a small portion. It's getting smaller on the right that says it's just the flu bra or more people die from cancer or heart disease or uh, anything else or even car accidents. You have those people. Yeah. And then there's the people, you know, even on the right, and some even libertarians are saying, you know, you got to open everything up willy-nilly, but you can't just do that. I think a majority of the folks on the right have the right idea. You got to open everything up in phases. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think that there's some libertarians who think wearing a mask is tyranny, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and there's some people on um, on the left that thinking if you shut, you need to shut everything down for the next six months or a year. And, which is completely not only impractical, it would just destroy the entire economy. Um, I mean, we're already in the midst of a Great Depression that's been facilitated by government. Um, I, I think that it does need to be done in phases. I think delegating it to the state level is the best, and locality specifically, like county by county. Because, like, for example, in Maryland, um, our governor, I think, has done a pretty good job. Uh, he's sort of letting the counties delegate when to open, how to reopen, and things like that. Um, like, I live on the eastern shore, and it's much less densely populated. It has much less cases of COVID, and we're, we're a seasonal-based economy. So by the summertime, if we can't reopen, it's just everything's going to be devastated. So he's letting, I think, the eastern shore open up earlier than pe people around Baltimore and areas like that. So I think a county-by-county county and a state-by-state state approach is the best way to do it and see how, how it works. Um, and if one state implements a certain policy that fails miserably, um, then the other states can look to that state and sort of avoid that. Um, and, but I think that some of the tyrannical overreaches of government that have are real, um, especially in Michigan, where uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor there, she like did so much that she banned seeds. So you couldn't buy seeds. Um, in stores in Michigan, you couldn't, uh, um, like, just buy basic things. Uh, and they shut down entire sections of stores um, because for really no reason at all other than to see how much power I think they could exercise over people. Um, 
it's just I think it's ridiculous. But then you have also the other approach where it's so lenient that um, like Sweden took such a lenient approach um, and we don't know the effects that that's going to have. But yeah, I think the local level decision making is best for this. Yeah, Whitmer's a total piece of work, but I, she's not even the worst in my book. The worst, that's got to be Andrew Cuomo. What a fucking incompetent yeah. piece of crap. It was his rule. I think it was either him or de Blasio that said, hey, send all the uh, uh, the COVID-19 patients into the uh, nursing homes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it's it's ridiculous. It's I think the, the amount that the, you know, the I call it the corporate press. It's not my term, but it's I've got it from Michael Malice, who I really, really like. Um, and when, but anyway... Uh, the corporate press, how they propped up Andrew Cuomo as a, some kind of hero um, for managing the worst disaster that's like ever happened in the last, I guess, in the last 100 years, actually, um, for a pandemic is just ridiculous. Um, what Andrew Cuomo has done is basically give a lot of press conferences where he can project some sort of strength, and he's propped up by the media. But other than that, if you look at the numbers, the state was doing horribly. And there was a recent law that was passed in New York where you can't sue nursing homes um, that were uh, engaging in malpractice and were engaging in bad hygiene practices that contributed to all these deaths and the spread of it. Um, so it's like, it's, I think it's ridiculous what's going on there and how he's being propped up as some sort of hero in all this. I think there's something that just came out today that said that there was another fuck-up within uh, Cuomo's administration. I keep forgetting. Something with the nursing homes. I'm not... Uh, too entirely sure, but my goodness. Even, I think somewhere I read, like, 53% of Republicans in New York approve of Cuomo. I'm not sure what the hell yeah. they're smoking. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, I guess New York Republicans are a different brand, but um, it's it's ridiculous. And also with Bill de Blasio, um, I think he's done an even worse job than, than Cuomo. Originally, he was saying everybody should be out in the streets and everything was fine in, like, early March. He was saying everything's fine, and now he's saying... We need to shut down everything, and if you don't want to give up your livelihood and give up your business and give up going out of the house for a year, then you're some sort of awful person. When he was the one in March that was saying all these things about how it was okay and he was downplaying the threat, um, I think he's an awful one of the one of the worst leaders in the country, Bill de Blasio. Him and Pelosi. Pelosi was saying, yo, come on down to Chinatown. Yeah, yeah, and... Just to make it even better, it was just an SJW stunt, you know, wrapped up in it um, because they were trying to say that Trump was somehow racist for his Chinese travel ban when this did originate in China. And now it's confirmed that it originated in a lab in Wuhan. Um, so that's been confirmed by, by intel agencies. And uh, it was portrayed as some sort of conspiracy theory a couple months ago by the corporate press. More on China later, but next topic, do you have an opinion on the whole Michael Flynn fiasco? We've just been revealed over the past couple of weeks, well, this week we just found out that several people in the Obama administration, including Biden, made multiple requests requests to unmask Michael Flynn when it even turned out that mm -hmm. Flynn didn't lie. What Flynn did was literally nothing compared to what has happened. The only reason why Flynn took the guilty plea is because they were going after his damn son. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think people don't realize that there are individuals who make guilty pleas because they're afraid of the alternative, not because they're necessarily guilty. Um, and that that's what a lot of people miss, I think. And they're really, I think Michael Flynn was unjustly prosecuted. I do think, though, that there is really no pure good guy on either side on this because 
you know, Michael Flynn did work for um, as a lobbyist for the Turkish government, basically, and did a lot of shady stuff with Erdogan, or, or I don't know how you pronounce that completely, but sort. I guess I got it right, sort of. Um, but yeah, so he worked with um, the Turkish government and uh, was sort of involved with um, the Russian government as well. So I, I don't think that there is any true good guy in this, but I do think the FBI misused its power when it was prosecuting Flynn. Um, basically for nothing. I mean, originally I heard the, there were notes um, the FBI agents uh, had written down after his interview saying they thought he was truthful. And then it came out um, later that he was going to be charged and it was just, it's just a fiasco. But I, I do think the broader point of this is basically the FBI, the CIA, our intel agencies, you know, don't mess with them, basically, is the message. Um, because if you do, you're going to get in trouble and they will find the crime. You don't have to have committed a crime, they'll find one. Um, and I think that's exhibited with Michael Flynn, but it's also been exhibited with this whole Russia investigation um, and what's been going on with uh, the abuse of the FISA procedures, um, which is actually uh, a bill coming up in Congress is discussing that now. They're trying to curtail some of the power of the FISA courts. But um, I don't know how, how that's going to work I think um, or if they're going to get anything through. I think uh, the co-sponsors of that bill, you're talking about the one in the Senate, that was uh, Ron Wyden and yes. someone else. Mike Lee, I think? I don't or think it was Mike Lee. Was it somebody? The, okay. I don't remember, but it got shut down. I think it just one vote short of mm-hmm. passing. It needed a 60-40. It needed a 60% uh, vote, 60 votes. Yes. But yes, one and, vote. And, and, and now it's going to go back to the House, apparently, because they changed the House bill in the Senate. So it's going to go back to the House, and who knows what the House is going to do with it, and then they have to meet in conference. So I hope that before all that's said and done, something can be done to help with privacy. But I, I doubt it, because the power of the intel agencies is really something. Um, you had, like, James Clapper and uh, Comey. Um, they all went on... Uh, all the press, show, all the ma- major uh, corporate press shows, and were going on and talking about how how horrible Trump is. That they had this sort of you know evidence of wrongdoing when really they admitted in private congressional testimony that there was no evidence they had of wrongdoing. Um, and it really shows their duplicity, and it shows how much how far they'll go to protect the power structure because Trump sort of had a foreign policy going into the administration that, where it was sort of not a non-intervention. But it was sort of less interventionist than like a big departure from most Republicans and Democrats um, in terms of winning less of the United States' role in maintaining all these dictatorships and and going into wars around the world. Um, He sort of ran on ending those things. And once he got in, I think the uh, intel agencies felt very threatened by that. Um, And they used their power to sort of try to bring uh, his administration down. I'm not saying he's totally innocent because I'm not a huge Trump guy. Um, but I am saying that the charges are overblown, and the Russian investigation was pretty much a sham. Yeah, I agree. Like I said, I was more of a Trump guy back in the uh, 2016, but then once 2017 came about, whenever he uh, launched those missiles into Syria, I think I explained that on the uh, episode one, I just stopped becoming such a cheerleader. But I do agree. One of the best things about Trump, especially with foreign policies, no new wars. He has not started any new wars but, yes, you know, granted, yes, he's still in his first term. Yeah, that that accomplishment is something that cannot be uh, missed because, uh, we, you know, we had Bush take us into Iraq and Afghanistan. We had Obama take us into North Africa. 
And I think it's been a pretty much a bipartisan effort to expand the American empire into all different parts of the world. And largely, it's turned out to be uh, an experiment that's ended in disaster. Um, I mean, you look at Libya, and we went into Libya unconstitutionally. And once we went in there, it's now a despotic slave state with open-air slave markets. And it's now the home to like Al-Shabaab and other terrorist groups. Um, it's like once we take out a bad dictator, it just foments more terrorism and leaves a power vacuum that ends up coming back to bite us in the end. I agree. You're thinking of one of the few uh, impeachable – I was not an Obama guy, but one of the more impeachable offenses that he did was unconstitutionally going into Libya. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that the IRS scandal was, was – people seemed to – like they, there was a big um, hysteria about that, and then it was forgotten. Um, but he was using – I mean it's not, it wasn't proven that he was directly using the IRS to target political opponents, but his – uh, low, the lower people in the IRS were targeting uh, Tea Party groups and other people on the right. Um, so that was a pretty significant scandal. People act as if he had no scandals. He had tons of them. Um, like, I think one of the biggest ones also was his NSA director lied to Congress and said that there was no spying, no warrantless spying going on. And it turns out there was an entire program devoted to that that was revealed by Snowden. Um, and it's just it shows the danger of giving government this much power, you know? I agree. Next is a more of a prevalent. I know you have been hawking this issue a lot. Uh, it's about the national debt. We have a national debt now of about $25 trillion. It's an, it's, I think yeah. it's been a crisis now for probably decades. So it's kind of a couple questions lodged into one. So I'll start off. How can we get the spending under control? Um, well, I think we need both parties to be completely eradicated, <laughs> but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, I think there's a bipartisan effort to spend as much money as possible. It just depends on the Republicans usually want to spend it more on defense and they want to spend it more on other things, but Democrats want to spend more on entitlements. And I think both parties have really come together to spend trillions in um, COVID aid. Uh, so and not that that's completely wrong because the government did have a role in shutting down the economy, so they should have a role in rebuilding it. But um, now that we're $25 trillion in debt, I, I don't think there's a, there needs to be a serious movement to try to cut spending, and I don't see it right now. I mean, I think the, like, the Republican Party under Trump has sort of abandoned uh, any conceptions of fiscal responsibility, and with the Democrats, they never even pretended to be fiscally responsible. So I think there, there either needs to be a paradigm shift in the parties or there needs to be um, a new party or something like that rise up that um, that calls for less spending because it's just a bipartisan thing right now. All right, so the next one in that uh, question, there's like I got like three of them in one. So how can we how can we pay off the national debt? Well, I mean, I think it would be not easy, but it'll be relatively easy. Um, there there have been plans to um, like the penny plan that was uh, talked about by. A lot of right-wing people um, that would have cut like a penny out of uh, each area of the federal budget and it, was, it would have cut like a trillion a year or something like that um, but what I would do I would restructure Social Security um, sort of privatize it for you individuals that are under 50 um, slightly, slightly raise the retirement age I would uh, introduce more private privatization and competition into Medicare um, and like sort of how Medicare Advantage right now uh, exists and has helped a lot of people, I think you need to introduce more of that. 
you need to give states more flexibility in dealing with entitlement programs because those are the main drivers of our debt. Um, I would cut $200 billion at least out of the um, overseas spending uh, per year. I would uh, dramatically lower taxes also because oftentimes when you lower taxes, you do see an increase in, in revenue um, to the government because you have a broader base, you have more economic activity, and thus more taxation coming into the government. Not that I'm a fan of taxation, but I'm, I'm just saying. Um, so I think it needs to be a multifaceted approach. Um, and it, it needs to be something that people have the stomach to do because most most people in either party don't. Um, uh, there's a couple like Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, and uh, Ben Sass, James Langford, a couple of those senators are pretty good on spending and on, on policy in general. But other than that, I don't see many other people who are willing to step up to the plate and and try to actually cut spending in a meaningful way. The first four senators that you just mentioned, probably my four only favorite senators. Um, ironically, now even Ted Cruz, there's a conservative review. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that site. They have a scorecard. They have a scorecard for every representative, which calculates how you vote, how each representative vote on the last 50 bills. So, like, look mm-hmm. at Ted Cruz. He, a couple, even a year ago, he had a, one of the higher liberty scores. But now he's been overpassed by people, you know, like Jim Risch or uh, Marsha Blackburn, who surprisingly has, like, a 90% liberty score. But he's got, like, a 78, Ted Cruz. I didn't know that. I, I, I used to look at the scores. I haven't looked at it in a little while. But, yeah, no, that, that's a helpful tool, I think. And um, I think that's a site owned by Mark Levin, isn't it? Uh, don't think it's... No, it's not owned by Mark Levin. I don't even know who owns it. Levin helped found uh, Conservative Review TV, which then merged with uh, Glenn Beck's uh, The Blaze. Oh, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure who really owns uh, Conservative Review, but that's a really good site. It is. Yeah, no, I like it. And um, there's also, like, ratings. I think think the Cato Institute has ratings. I think Heritage Foundation has ratings. Um, And those are often helpful in deciding who to vote for, but... Um, I do think that there needs to be a really big paradigm shift or else we're, we're not going to be able to cut spending because there just doesn't seem to be an appetite for it at the top of the ticket, um, at least when it comes to Trump and, and uh, obviously Democrats. I mean, I, I, don't think, I don't think Biden knows much about not only spending but much about anything. I don't think he knows where he is. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I think it's just going to be a disaster either way unless, unless some people you know, rise up and, and help to change the paradigm. I agree with you there. And the last question in that one, what is the possibility that the U.S. winds up defaulting, and then what the hell is going to happen from that point? Well, I think one of the bigger – so defaulting is one big danger. The other big danger is inflation. So right now we don't have too much inflation, but we're we're starting to rise in that. Um, I think when we default on our debt – so right now we're $25 in debt. If we default, most of that is held by China. Um, and that's a very dangerous place to be because China, I think, represents the number one geopolitical foe in the world right now, and um, they're not going to be merciful to us. Um, so it could lead to war easily. Um, it could lead to us, if we default, our credit rating would go way down. Nations wouldn't invest in this country. Economic activity would come to a halt. Um, in terms of uh, the inflation, if you print more money, you're going to have more inflation. The more of a quantity you have, the less of the value that that quantity has. So the more money you print, the more inflation, and it's going to keep going up and up and up, and it's going to decrease purchasing power for the individual, 
And that's a very dangerous place to be because not only are you taxed out of your mind, but you also have the hidden tax of inflation that um, stops you from buying basic goods. And so I think it's just, it's a very, very bad place to be. And um, it could really just destroy our economy. So if we don't get it under control, um, it has the potential to really wreck us. I think more so than any um, foreign adversary, the, the debt that we have right now is actually the most dangerous thing that, that exists um, in terms of our national security threats right now. Money printer go burr, say the neoliberals and establishment Republicans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I try to get along with everybody and I try to like, as long as people come to me with honest arguments and we can debate and stuff, that's fine. But the Globes on Twitter are just some of the worst. I mean, they are, they are just, uh, you know, some of the worst people I've interacted with um, on Twitter. Uh, not because that their ideas are so bad necessarily, which they are, but because of how they act typically. Uh, just very pompous and, and just not willing to listen. They seem to be very elitist. I don't, I don't like it at all. Yeah, exactly. Like a lot of neoliberals really just uh, shit on libertarianism. Not even just conservatism, but just pure libertarianism. I know there's a few. I don't know if I should mention any. But there's one I really like. Um, you, have you, do you follow a Fed Up Fed, a neoliberal federalist? I'm not sure if you're familiar um, with that. I, may have, I think I've heard the name before, but I don't, I don't think I follow him. Uh, is that a good one? Is that a good account? It's one of those old, you know, never Trump Republican types. But I think that account is. I think uh, I just found out it's a that account. It's a she. They always come off. That account always comes off as kind of masculine. So I thought it was kind of a dude. But no, it turns out that uh, neoliberal Fed is a girl, which is just. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> we need to be careful. You don't want to misgender. No, I know, I know, I know. But seriously, I think that account is a a decent account. You follow uh, Dylan Meisner. Um, yes, I do. I think, yes, he's one of the better accounts on, on the Globes. Uh, um, I followed him for a while, and we've talked and stuff. I, I do like him, yeah. And the only grab I really have with him is the fact that he enthusiastically supported Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Yeah, I. it seems like there's been sort of an evolution in some of his views where he was more independent before, and now it seems like he's pretty hardcore Dem. But that sort of happens in an election year, and as you get closer to the election, it seems like people get more and more into their partisan camps. Um, but I still think he has a lot of good ideas, and he's a smart person, definitely. Oh, very much so. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next question is, what's your opinion of Justin Amash's bid for POTUS? Um, so I like Amash a lot, actually. Um, on paper, he's a pretty perfect ideological candidate for me because um, he's pro-life, and one of the main issues that separates me from libertarians in general is being pro-life. I think um, the abortion issue... Protecting life is a natural extension of the NAT, the non-aggression principle, um, because you're pre protecting life is one of the um, foundations of any government, uh, life and property. And uh, so he's pro-life, and he's um, not for complete open borders like a lot of libertarians are, which is another issue that I sort of separate myself from the mainstream of libertarianism on. Um, so I, I like that. And on all the issues of spending, civil liberties, um, all that, he's really good at uh, guns. And um, I, I think he would be a really good president, of, of course, much better than uh, Trump or Biden. Um, I actually just donated to him uh, two weeks ago, and I'm, I'm planning on, if he wins the Libertarian nomination, I'd vote for him for president. Um, so, I mean, he would have my vote. Uh, but I think Jacob Hornberger also, who's running against um, Justin Amash, is a more 
hardcore libertarian, and he would probably have my vote as well, although he's not for um, any sort of pro-life legislation. A few things to add in there. Uh, well, I say, my only qualm with Amash would be that I'm not sure how hard on China he'd be because what we know now, especially with COVID-19, I'd like to talk about that a little bit later, that it's China. China's got to pay. They've got to pay somehow, some way. They've got to pay. Yes. And another thing, you know, with uh, the whole Amash thing with uh, him, a lot of people, you would think that the people who would be pissed off the most would be the uh, Trump supporters because I think Amash has a decent shot of cutting into his base. But no, it's the Rick Wilson and Joe Walsh types. <laughs> I don't yeah, get it. Well, because... well, I mean, I think the only way to square that circle is to say that um, those types like Rick Wilson and some of the never Trump Republicans, um, Justin Amash's candidacy exposes them for the frauds that they are because they wanted to vote for Joe Biden all along. And then comes a credible alternative where they apparently, you know, Justin Amash shares their views apparently, which really they're closet Democrats basically, so he doesn't, but uh, they pretend to have those views. And when he enters the race, he exposes them for being frauds and now they can't vote for Biden with a clean conscience. Um, So I think that's why they're pretty mad at him. And it looks like depending on the poll you look at, um, Amash cuts pretty evenly from, from both Trump and Biden. Sometimes he cuts more from Biden, but um, like I saw a poll in Michigan where he was at 10% of the vote, um, which would be pretty unprecedented for a libertarian to get 10% of the vote in the state. Um, and uh, that actually decreased Biden's lead from like nine to seven points or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think he would change the dynamics. He would certainly be a great voice to have on the debate stage um, to call for fiscal sanity and protection of civil liberties, because you're not going to have that from either Biden or Trump. Um, and I, I think I think Biden's record on civil liberties needs to be out in the forefront more because if you compare the two, actually Trump has a better civil liberties record than Biden um, because of his prison reform agenda and different things like that. I mean, Biden was the architect of the 94 crime bill, and he was the architect of a lot of anti-drug legislation, and he was just – he's been authoritarian throughout his Senate career. Um, so I just think uh, Biden is just as bad – uh, if not more than Trump on civil liberties. But I think Amash would have a, a good presence on the debate stage and be a good force, um, you know, generally in the in the election. But as you were saying about Rick Wilson and those guys, um, yeah, I think his Amash's candidacy really exposes them for, for the frauds that they are, um, and that's why they dislike him so much. Yeah, also, I have a little bit of a side note here. I've been kind of torn on uh, criminal justice reform. I do agree, you know, legalize pot both recreationally and uh medically but you know i've been in one of the thing more than 1994 crime bill somewhat decreased crime mm-hmm. well um it, it decreased crime to some degree yes uh there were some good effects i think every policy has trade-offs and to say that you know it's going to be all good one way or all good another way is just utopianism so everything's going to have trade-offs but i think that in a larger picture it really has destroyed a lot of minority communities. I think it's destroyed the black family in a a large degree. And uh, it's locked up a lot of innocent um, minorities in jail for crimes that I don't don't personally view as even crimes because I think a crime is something where you aggress on a person's property or their person. So like theft, murder, assault, all those types of things, those are crimes. But in terms of just uh, buying and selling, in terms of uh, just ingesting a substance the government doesn't want you to ingest and then throwing you into a cage for it and then having you, you know, potentially raped and beaten and potentially murdered in that cage for 
simply ingesting a substance or for trips with somebody else. Uh, unjust, in my opinion. Yeah, I will say that I think that, you know, what was I trying to say? Gambling should be legal, which I don't understand why that's even a uh, crime in some states. And, like, what about, like, uh, bank fraud? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, see, with bank fraud, I think that goes back to the enforcement of contracts. So if if you have a, a contract between two uh, entities or individuals, um, the government's proper role is to enforce contracts. So, and you abide by the original terms of those contracts. So um, in terms of bank fraud, if you're committing fraud, you're violating contract. And um, that should be, that should obviously be a crime because you are aggressing on, on a person by breaking that contract. And you are, uh, you're, you're violating that person's um, uh, legal uh, right for their property. So, um, yes, I think bank fraud should be prosecuted for sure. I know another crime that definitely should not be prosecuted. That, this, and this might be one of my more right-wing views, tax evasion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I agree also. I agree with that. And, I mean, I think the income tax should be abolished and the 16th Amendment should be repealed personally. Yeah, um, abolish that switch completely to a flat tax at anywhere from 10 to 12 percent. Yeah, and that would be a much better system than we have now. I mean, I would love – I would sign on to that bill any day. Um, right now, our tax system is is awful, and it benefits. It actually perversely benefits the wealthy, if you think about it, because they do pay more in tax. But also, they can keep out their competition in terms of business. They can keep out their competition um, by this convoluted tax code that needs tons of lawyers and tons of um, bureaucratic administration to even attempt to to parse through. And um, smaller business and medium business are not going to have the same resources to deal with it with a complex tax code as uh, big business and so it protects big business it protects a lot of the wealthy um, and that's why you know I mean it, it's by design uh, those types of people design the policies because their lobbyists write the bills and it's it's sort of a corporatist system we have now I like I like to say it's sort of a corporatist thing not a capitalist structure because a lot of the problems that are blamed on capitalism are actually a byproduct of government intervention in my opinion yeah, exactly i'm right there with you on that one next up i know you uh, talked about this a little earlier what is your overall opinion of how uh, governor hogan has handled uh the response to COVID 19 in maryland um so i think he's done a pretty good job i think he has not been nearly as authoritarian as like whitmer as cuomo as uh, newsom in California, um, I think he struck a good line. I, he purchased um, some 600,000 test kits from South Korea when he couldn't get any from the federal government, um, and he secured, you know, enough testing for the state. He's really working hard, I think, to um, have a county by county focused reopening, where um, you know people in their local communities can decide how and when best to reopen. Um, and I think that's a good the, a good policy to have. Um, so, I mean, overall, I think he's done a pretty good job. I'd give him a B, basically. Um, I think Ron DeSantis, people were criticizing him as being slow to act and and stuff like that, but Florida has seen not nearly as many cases as people were saying, and Ron DeSantis, I think, has done a pretty good job also, and so has, um, Greg Abbott, who's probably my favorite governor, um, in Texas. One thing that's really pissing me off about this coverage, you know, Ron DeSantis, he opened up uh, Florida a couple of weeks ago, and people in the mainstream media were losing their shit. Yet, Jared yeah. Paulus, the neoliberal governor governor of Colorado, did the same thing. No coverage. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yes. And that demonstrates it's not just a double standard, because if it was a double standard, the media would just be they'd have an agenda or something like that. But I view the media as not only having an agenda, but they are a wing of the establishment Democratic Party. They they not only are um, partisan, but they drive the agenda. And I think in some ways, Democratic representatives are their lackeys. Um, they are the ones that are that are controlling um, the left in this country. And I think until people wake up and understand that the, the press, um, the big MSNBC, CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, all those you know different networks, um, until people understand how fraudulent and um, left wing those networks are, then we'll still be in the dark about a lot of things. Um, and uh, I think to look to them as any source of truth is so wrong. Not going to lie, I'd much rather have the establishment. If it just came down to two people, like an establishment Democrat versus a Bernie Sanders communist, I'll take the establishment type any day. Bernie Sanders and his acolytes are very, very dangerous, I think. Yeah, I would partially agree with that. I think, um, so as a libertarian, I might have a slightly different take on it. I do agree with you that they're very dangerous in the sense of their economic policies, that they would just enforce full-on Marxism on the country. And I really, I think that's one of the most dangerous things ever, but... I also think that there are some redeeming qualities like uh, on civil liberties, on criminal justice, on foreign policy, on ending the drug war, and things like that. That's why when Biden got nominated, um, I was like, there's no way I'm voting for a Democrat in this election because Biden is, in, in my mind, is a libertarian. He's the worst of both worlds. He's, he's against all like civil liberties, criminal justice reform. He's an interventionist. But at the same time, he also brings that economic leftism that um, he's increasingly becoming more economically left uh, and adopting from Sanders because he's basically a chameleon. Um, and I think he provides sort of the worst of both worlds, similar to Hillary Clinton. Um, and I really, uh, you know, so there's trade-offs, basically, is what I'm saying. And I think that both sides, both wings of the Democratic Party, are dangerous. Hell's going to freeze over when I say this, but... You're right, not just because I'm agreeing with you, but I'm actually agreeing that, you know, progressive, there is a trade-off to an extent with the hard left, with their civil mm -hmm. liberties. Yeah. And yeah. now... And, and uh, I, I do think Bernie Sanders was, like, a uniquely dangerous candidate, though, because of his praise for authoritarian regimes and his, uh, like, I mean, you can find videos of him praising every single, like, tyrannical murderous regime under the sun as long as they're communist. And I think he was a really unique threat. Um, also, so I mean, I, I I have no love for either side of the Democratic Party. To quote Bernie Sanders, it's a good thing that the people are lining up for food. In other countries, the richer get the food and the poor starve to death. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what he said. That's exactly what he said. And it's uh, it, it shows such a fundamental misunderstanding of not only economics, but freedom. He has such a misunderstanding of freedom. And um, I mean, if it were up to him, there would be no freedom in this country. Um, and it's, it's a very scary prospect. Now, switching over to more of a Biden topic, where do you stand on the whole Tara Reid-Joe Biden uh, fiasco, if you've been following that? Um, I have been following it to some degree. Um, I don't know really who to believe in this scenario. I'm inclined to believe Tara Reid, but that could also be my partisanship. Um, I have not, like, I do think there's some corroboration to her um, assault allegations, and I think Biden's denial was confusing at best, and the reason he won't release the um, University of Delaware records about her is um, is concerning. I want to know why he won't release those. 
Um, so I don't really know. I don't come down really firmly on either side of that, but I think he's just a uniquely bad candidate on, on policy. Um, I do think Trump is going to use that in the general election, and I think that uh, even though Trump has 17 allegations against him or however many, 25. he's going to use it. 25, yeah. He's going to use it shamelessly, um, regardless, and it'll it's going to work partly. I think um, it's already starting to. Like I think Biden was like way up in the polls a couple weeks ago, and if you look at some of the polls now, uh, Trump is really cutting into his lead, and now voters are waking up to the allegations more so. I think one poll recently showed that 77% of voters were um, aware of these allegations, and they did not view Biden favorably for that. They didn't really believe his his denial. So. It muddies the waters with, in terms of sexual misconduct between the two candidates. I, I think there's one thing that's going to be glaring about all this. Two words. Brett Kavanaugh. Look at how the media treated Kavanaugh. Look at what happened there. And now look at what's yeah. going on with Joe Biden. But I'm not going to – like I said, whenever the whole thing t- came out, I was uh, a bit stubborn to jump on the bandwagon. But then I found out, you know, the whole Tara Reid's mother calling into uh, Larry King's show back in 1993 and several yes. other – uh, people have corroborated uh, Tara Reid's claims, unlike Christine Blasey Ford or any of the other women who accused Kavanaugh. Nobody could even corroborate. Christine Blasey Ford didn't even know where she was, what house she was yeah. in, who else was there, whatnot. Yeah, I think that was a wake-up call for a lot of um, conservatives and people on the right was how the media treated Brett Kavanaugh. Like, I, I thought the media was the enemy of the people. Well, the corporate press was the enemy of the people before um, the way they treated Brett Kavanaugh, but after, I mean, it just really emphasizes the point. Um, you're not going to see any demonstrations or any chalk drawings of believe all women in terms of uh, a reaction to Tara Reid. You're going to see it for uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and like you said, the, the Ford accusations were much less credible, and um, I think Kavanaugh's denial was was very, very good, and it was very, very substantive, and um, I, I do believe him, and I think that it was sadistic of a lot of people on the left to say, oh, he was crying, he was getting angry during his, his rebuttal, and so therefore he had, doesn't have the temperament to be on the judiciary. Well, he was accused of gang rape, and he was accused of rape by several people, and he's having this orchestrated media hit job on him, and, and you expect him to, be, you know, how do you expect him to react? And if he reacted the other way and, and wasn't sad or, or wasn't um, angry at all, about it, they'd say, oh, look at this sociopath who clearly did it because he doesn't have any emotions or anything like that. I mean, they are the enemy. They are awful people. You literally just took the words right out of my mouth. I was about to say the exact same thing, those smug pricks, those smug feminazi pricks. Yeah, I mean, the media and how they treated him, the Democratic, um, just for everybody, how they all treated him was just awful. I mean, it was a really, it was a wake-up call, I think, for a lot of people about how awful um, many in the, on the left are. All right, final question for you, my man. What needs to be done about China? Let's face it, it's out now. All the things that happened with the COVID-19, it was originated in China because people wouldn't stop eating the bats or because it originated in a uh, Wuhan laboratory. And I know, you know, libertarians tend to, uh, they don't tend to support a lot of military intervention or a lot of, you know, economic intervention, you know, like tariffs or putting a stranglehold, but something something has to be done. I don't care if we just mm-hmm. straight up just put the biggest stranglehold on their economy or even if we send in the Marines, which that honestly, that would be tough. If we send in the Marines, that would be our toughest. We could honestly overthrow any regime within, say, a week. But China, we'd have a hard time with them. 
Yeah, that, that, yes, that would be, um, I understand the feelings for that, for, for wanting to intervene militarily like that, but um, obviously, like you said, it would just be too far too costly in human life. Um, for libertarians, yeah, a lot of them think that even criticizing, um, not a lot, but there are some, and there are some fringe groups on every side, Republicans, Democrats, libertarians, but uh, some libertarians think that even criticizing a foreign government that is engaging in atrocities is tantamount to, to intervention, and that's not the case at all. Um, I think you can criticize, you can engage in economic warfare if it's, if it's appropriate. Um, but where I draw the line, of course, is boots on the ground and, and military intervention. Now, for you know, what to do broadly about China, I think we need to enter into more trade agreements with their, um, with their uh, enemies in, the, in Southeast Asia. We need to work closer with India um, in terms of diplomacy, military, a bunch of different ways. I think we need to reorient the supply chains that we have away from China in terms of medicine, and uh, raw, uh, raw earth, uh, rare earth minerals, um, and different things that we are very dependent on China from. I think we need to isolate them in the international community, um, prosecute them aggressively in the WTO, and also um, do targeted sanctions on their banking system. I think that's a very good um, thing to start. I, I, tariffs can be sometimes useful in terms of national security, but I think that it might not be the best route to go unless you want to put tariffs on very specific industries like Trump was doing it on everything he did it on soybeans and on food and stuff like that's not going to affect that's just going to hurt people exactly. you know, it's going to hurt our, our, our farmers um, so I think it needs to be a multifaceted approach um, and you can do it without boots on the ground you can do it without war um, but we have to isolate them we have to do all that we can short of war to bring down their economy um, to the point where they're more um, they're willing to either accept reform or, um, you know, just sink into oblivion because they're holding right now millions of people in concentration camps with the um, Uyghurs, and they're um, engaging in all kinds of, of fraudulent business in Africa. They're trying to uh, violate the rights of people in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, I mean, and like you said, the, the main thing, they released this pandemic and this plague on the country and when the world and I saw a recent um, study, maybe not recent, about two months ago, that showed um, up to 95% of deaths could have been prevented if China had not covered this up for political reasons. Um, and that number should be startling to people because if not for the Chinese government, the, the Communist Party of China, we could have not had a Great Depression. We could have not had 85,000 or 86,000 in the United States people dead. Um, it's just, it's awful what's going on and they, they need to tag for that. Jared Rabel, you are one smart intellectual. I think you have the, uh, <clears throat> you have the potential to become possibly the next Milton Friedman or the next Stephen. I know you may disagree, but maybe even Ben Shapiro. I know you have your disagreements with him. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. That, that's really, I appreciate that very much. Also, I'd like to add in there that, you know, there are some libertarians who are kind of getting on my nerves. Like they're like... Or a conservative type would bring up, you know, we got to do something about China, and then libertarians like, oh, you're tweeting that from your iPhone. Really? Yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah, yeah no, and, and they have a monopoly on all the, um, the rare earth minerals that make iPhones, so we haven't taken the action to reorient our supply chains from them. So you can't help but have an iPhone right now with it, with, with it being made in China. You can't help, you know, that. And it's just like not taking people's concerns seriously and – just sticking to such a dogmatic and um, like it's good to have principles, but it's not good to be so fringe that you can't even think 
and you need to be able to analyze things on a case-by-case basis to a certain degree, and I, I try to do that, so I really appreciate um, you saying that. Thank you. Hey, no problem. Also, I want to I'll just bring about the iPhone. I have an Android, so I'm trying to figure out where the heck that was made. <laughs> yeah, no, I have an Android, too, actually. I have a Samsung Galaxy right now, but um, I'm planning to get an iPhone in, uh, like, for my birthday, probably, so we'll, we'll see about that, but I, I still will be able to advocate for tougher measures on China, even though I'll be, I'll have an iPhone, I can still do, I can walk and chew gum. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so another question that's not really on the list, but just for, you know, shits and giggles, um, I'm reading Mark Levin's current, uh, most recent book, Unfreedom of the Press. Whenever I get finished with that, I think I may try to read uh, some Friedman. Which book would you recommend for Milton Friedman, if he has any, even? Milton Friedman? Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I, I love Capitalism and Freedom. That's a really, that's a great book um, by Milton Friedman. I think you would also like, um, if you want other suggestions, I think you would also like F.A. Hayek. He's one of, he's one of my favorite um, economists, and he's one of the most influential people to me. Um, and his books, like The Constitution of Liberty and also The Road to Serfdom, are two incredible books that I think would really increase anybody's knowledge about politics and philosophy and econ- economics in general. Um, it's really, it's, he's a, he's a cool person. Well, Jared, it looks like I'm seeing we shattered the podcast length of my last episode. Episode one, I had about 26 minutes. We're over an hour. We did pretty damn good. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it It was fun. It was fun. Uh, would you... I appreciate you having me. Yeah, no problem. Would you be willing to, would you be willing to give out, you know, your Twitter? Like, where can people find you if you're willing to give that out? Oh. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my Twitter is at jrad, so J-R-A-D, Rabel, and that's that's my Twitter handle. Um, I don't really have many other, you know, inf- influencer-type things besides my Twitter. That's where I keep the politics and stuff. For other social media, it's basically family and things like that and friends. Same here. Um, but, yeah, so, so, so that's basically that, – that's where you can find me for uh, political takes and economic takes and all that type of stuff. <laughs> Well, Jared, it was good to have you. I'll have to have you on again if uh, there's a topic that's up in the news that's in your neck of the woods. Thank you so much for coming on, buddy. Thank you very much, and I'll be glad to come on again at some point. Thank you. Yep, have a great weekend. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, that was Jared Rabel. Like I said, he's a very, very smart guy. He knows what he's talking about. He's extremely intellectual. Like I said, I compare him to uh, Milton Friedman or uh, Ben Shapiro. But like I said, I'm going to have him on sometime in the near future. Like I said also, I can't not believe I shattered the old podcast uh, length record. I was at 26 minutes the first time. Now I'm over an hour and six minutes. So I hope you all find the discussion that we had very intriguing. I hope you guys learned some things, even a few of my progressive uh, progressive friends. Maybe you'll learn a few things or two. Uh, anywho now, I'm going to sign off here. I'll upload it to SoundCloud. And this time, it'll be up tonight instead of Saturday because I've given up all hope on YouTube. It's uh, basically run by left-wing communists. And, well, not necessarily that. I had a hard time getting it up. It'd take, like, hours and hours, and it would just sit at a certain point. So I'm going to put it on SoundCloud. I'll share it to all my social sites. Again, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Braden's World. That's... Uh, B-R-A-D-E-N-S underscore W-O-R-L-D. It's all lowercase. And um, if you have any suggestions as to how I can make the show better, uh, you can send me a direct message on Twitter. Again, my uh, my uh, handle is Braden's World. B as in boy, R-A-D-E-N as in November, S underscore 
W-O-R-L-D. Again, I am open to suggestions as to how to make the show better, and I'm also glad that I got the microphone working. I'm hoping you guys could tell a difference. I just had to get another cord. So I will leave you with uh, Proverbs 29-23, my favorite verse. I hope you all have a great weekend. I'm going to go make some dinner, and then I'm going to watch Sling Blade. Have a great, great weekend. I'll see you back here next Friday. I'm going to try and get on uh, Sandra McDowell. She is running for governor. Uh, she's trying to upset Governor Mike Parsons, so I thought that was interesting. I may try to bring her on. We may try to discuss a few things. If not, we'll just do a news roundup. So, like I said, Proverbs 29-23. Y'all have a great weekend.